Today's scripture reading is from Amos 7, 1 to 9, and then 8, 1 and 2, and 11 and 12. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling by judgment for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a, by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, he replied. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Janet. Will you join me in prayer? O oh God of light, on the very first day you caused light to shine out of darkness. Now flood our hearts with light from your word. O oh Jesus Christ, Son of God, you are the light of the world. As we read and speak and listen, shine in and through us. O oh Jesus Christ, amen. So there's a, little, uh, there's a little dissonance going on, the way the reading ended, and if, you, if you're here in person, you notice you just went down to the next line in your program, and you saw the title, A Mysterious Mercy, and you thought, wait a minute, this doesn't sound very merciful. What's going on there? We're in the third, of a four, third part of a four-week series uh, this summer where we're looking at the Old Testament prophet Amos. And Amos is all about, really, the interplay and the relationship between God's justice and God's mercy. And in a sense, we're asking, how can God's judgment and God's mercy coexist? And could it be, furthermore, that God's judgment is a form of God's mercy? Now, justice and mercy seem like opposites to us. So maybe it'll help you to think of two sides of a coin. Here's a, um, just a quarter. This is one of the old ones. So on the, if, if I were to ask you what's on the front of this quarter, you would say, well, George Washington's head, and you'd be right. And if I asked you what's on the back of it, 
you know this is before they did the state, so what's on the back of the quarter? It's an eagle, of course. The thing about a coin is you can only see one side of the coin at a time. If I look at it here, all I see this way is George Washington's head. I can't see the tail. And if I look at it this way, all I see is the eagle. I can't see the head side. And no matter what I do, I can't see both sides at once. Even if I kind of try to stare cross-eyed and it just it doesn't work. It's, it helps me, maybe it helps you to think of it a little bit like that. Just because I don't see the tail side doesn't mean it's not there. And just because I don't see the head side doesn't mean it's not there. Somehow, and there's mystery here, that's why we're kind of exploring it, but somehow God's justice and God's mercy not just coexist, but are part of the same. And one key that we've seen so far is that God shows his judgment when he brings or allows his judgment, however you want to look at it, he does it in order to get our attention, to get us to turn to him. Seek me and live, he says. We saw more about that last week. In other words, the judgment is a mercy because it's meant to get our attention and stop us from traveling too far down a road to destruction. Now this morning, we're going to really zoom in on kind of one question because Amos is full of judgment language. One question that many of us often have when we think about God's judgment. The question is this, does God's judgment mean God is cruel? We see it, we hear it, we often ask, is, is God, doesn't that, that makes God sound vindictive or mean-spirited or petty or whatever. How do we wrestle with that? It's worth noting, by the way, an ancient listener probably never would have asked these, this question, and yet, even though an ancient Israelite in 760 BC when Amos was written probably never would have asked this question, the text gives us answers to our questions. It's almost like when God was inspiring Amos to write what he wrote, he knew that we would be asking this question 2,700 years later, and he gives us insight. This morning, we're going to see two answers, two different answers to this question. Is God cruel in his judgment? Is he mean? Is he vindictive? The first is a little more implicit. We're going to have to kind of read between the lines, but I'll show you how I read, and I'll show you my work there. The second will be much more explicit, and you probably, probably jump right out as Janet was reading. The first answer revolves around God being exceptionally, exceedingly fair. The second revolves around God being exceptionally and exceedingly merciful. So that's basically our outline this morning. Two points. The exceptional, exceeding fairness of God and the exceptional, exceeding mercy of God. Let's look at them uh, in order. So first, God's fairness. Last week we were in Amos 5, and we saw that God basically says to his people, seek me and live. Seek me. Seek me. Not anything else. And in Amos 5, he says, don't seek Bethel. Now, I'm not going to rehash all of last week's sermon. Bethel was a major religious site for the Israelites, for God's people. And we might ask, wait a minute, why wouldn't God want his people to go to this major religious site? The short version is because they were so eager to get religious that they forgot about God. They were so eager to jump on the religion bus that they left God on the side 
of the road. They had become so concerned with the rituals that they forgot about the one to whom the rituals are supposed to point. Seek me and live, God says in Amos 5. But now in Amos 8, look, if you have your program, this is at the very end, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what he says now. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, and yet they will not find it. I will send a famine, he says, of hearing my word. Now, what I hope you're asking is this. Wait a minute. In Amos 5, he says, seek me and you'll live. And in Amos 8, he says, you will seek me and not find me. How do we reconcile those? The short version is this, and this is what we're going to explore, that God's people aren't actually seeking God. They're seeking something more selfish. They're using religious rituals as a cheap substitute for the God to whom those rituals are supposed to point. Here's how they might put it in more modern-day language. It's, we might call it improper religion, and God warns us about this. It's a set of man-made rituals that subconsciously convince us that God will accept us. So here's how it goes in our minds. If I just serve God enough, if I just do enough good things, if I just behave well enough, or if I just, if I just don't to, do too many bad things, if I just go to church, if I just get baptized, if I just raise my kids right, if I just, if I just, if I just, then God will approve of me. What's wrong with that? What God said is that is using a ritual in order to get something from God. It's in essence, I mean, we wouldn't say this on the outset, but at a deep level, it's an attempt to manipulate God, to get God on your side. It's not a selfless act. It's actually very selfish because you're doing it in order to get something for yourself from God. But God doesn't work that way. Just this week, I got an email from a, a missions agency that I respect, and it was, um, I just want to read you an excerpt. This is written by a woman named Kristen Huffman, and it was a description about a trip she had taken a couple years ago to Ethiopia. Listen to what she writes. She says, it was 9 o'clock. I finally had my chance to slip away from the team and crawl into bed for a long sleep. We were six days into a 10-day mission trip to Ethiopia. I was tired. I was full to the brim with sights and sounds and emotions from seeing what God was doing in that land. We had spent 15 hours in the car the day before, and my body was crying for a hot shower and the bed. I left the dinner table, went to my room, and discovered that the toilet wouldn't flush. It may not sound like a big deal, but in a developing country, country where a stomach bug can strike at any moment with cataclysmic results, I just didn't want to spend the night without a working toilet. So I went to the front desk. 
And despite my limited language skills, I got someone to come to my room and take a look. He jiggled the toilet handle and pronounced it fixed. But it wasn't. (laughs) Fifteen minutes later, I was back to the front desk with more hand signals, trying to explain my problem, and we went back to fix my toilet again. Now fixed, the man said. It wasn't fixed. About ten minutes passed, and I found myself at the front desk yet again. This time I tried another angle, and I asked to speak to a different person. Okay, no fix. Tomorrow, the man said. I'd reached the end of my missionary tolerance rope. I went back to the dining room to find our Ethiopian host and team leader. And in a quiet voice that hopefully didn't betray my desperation, I said, I need your help. He came with me, and along with both men I had spoken to at the front desk, went to my room. When it was clear that I wasn't crazy and that the toilet really was busted, my host, Orgesa, got me a new room and had me completely moved in in less than five minutes. I fell apart, tears flowing. He gave me a big hug and patted my back and softly said, Kristen, you should have come to me sooner. You should have come to me sooner. You might say that that's God's message in Amos. Why do you keep trying to figure everything out yourself? You should have come to me sooner. Because at the end of the day, you kind of, you get what you seek. In fact, this is the greatest justice possible, the greatest fairness possible. This is the exceeding fairness of God. See, when we think about God's judgment, we think of it as a, as a really harsh punishment for a minor crime, you get like getting a life sentence for stealing a loaf of bread. But that's not what it is. If you look throughout Scripture, and we see this in Amos, God's justice or judgment, and I, I know I'm using justice and judgment pretty much interchangeably here, is just God giving us what we asked for in the first place. C.S. Lewis puts it really well. He's helped me a lot in this. In The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis writes this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Let me read that one more time. At the end of the day, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. He continues, this is C.S. Lewis again, he says, all that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Those who seek, find. Seek me and live. In Amos, and especially Amos 8, it's as if God is saying, if you're not looking for me, then don't be surprised when you don't find me. You might call it Burger King theology. Have it your way. (laughs) Have it your way. Okay, God says. Have it your way. You say you want to do this without me? 
You say you want to figure this out on your own? Okay. Do it without me. Through this lens, all God's justice is, all God's judgment is, is God giving us what we asked for in the first place. What is more fair than that? In Ezekiel 33, God says this. I'm going to throw a little wrinkle into things. In Ezekiel 33, God says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I think this is verse 12 if you're taking notes. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live. Turn, God says. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O people of Israel? See, do you hear God's heart in this? God's justice, God's judgment, is not God giving a life sentence because somebody was hungry and could only steal a loaf of bread to feed their hunger. God's justice is an inevitable result of God's love, which says, I will give you a choice. You have a choice. And if you have a genuine choice, then you can choose to walk from me. God's justice is inseparable from his love in that sense. In order to be truly loving, God has to let us do what we ask. I take no pleasure in it. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Notice, by the way, he doesn't say, I take no pleasure in the death of good people. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the ones who most deserve. Even their death grieves God. It's not that he's walking around looking to hurl lightning bolts recreationally. It's that his love demands justice. One more way to to look at this. Imagine that somebody... Imagine that somebody, uh, this is a very severe example, I know, somebody hurts somebody you love. And the police catch the person, the criminal, and they take them to court. And in the court, the judge says, you know what, I'm feeling merciful. You can go. How would you feel? In that case, in that moment, that judge would not be loving to be merciful instead of just. In fact, it would be cruel and unloving to not show justice. The justice of God is not cruel. A lack of justice would be cruel. In order for God to be God, he must be just. But how can he necessarily be just and yet take no delight in it? Take no delight in meeting out that justice. Here we have to turn our attention to the other side of the coin. Justice is the head side Mercy is the tail side. And remember, just because you can't see the backside of the coin doesn't mean it's not there. It just means you can't see everything all at once. For God's mercy, let's look back at chapter 7. If you have your Bible or if you have your program, look at the first six verses. I'm going to read these first six verses again, by the way. And as I read them, just answer the question in your mind. Why does God show mercy to the Israelites in Amos 7? Why? What grounds do we get for God's mercy here? This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. 
He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up. And when they had stripped the land clean, it was agricultural society, so crops equal money. Locusts mean a complete economic destruction. Just as they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. Verse 4. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. By fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land, and I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Did you hear it? Why does God show mercy? It's kind of a trick question. There are really two answers, two different ways of saying the same thing. First, well, first way of saying it, for no good reason. And maybe the second way of putting it is because Amos asked. That's it. That's it. Notice this. The Israelites don't repent. He doesn't say, Amos doesn't say, God, forgive us. We will change our ways. And God says, okay. No. They don't repent. They don't change. They don't say, we're going to start following God now. They don't tear down their altars to other gods. They don't destroy their idols to other gods. They don't start showing a concern and care for the poor and powerless, just like Amos makes it very clear that God is eminently concerned with the poor and the powerless. Like, they don't do one single thing. From your and my perspective, there is no good reason for God to show mercy to the Israelites. Except what? They asked. <laughs> That's it. More properly, Amos asked. It actually, like, that makes it even more baffling when you think about it. They didn't even ask for themselves. Amos asked on their behalf. It's incredibly impersonal. It's impersonal when somebody asks for something on your behalf. Moment of confession here. In seventh grade, my seventh grade girlfriend, Steph I won't tell you her last name, Stephanie broke up with me through a friend. That's incredibly insulting and impersonal. Like you would think God would say, ask for yourself. Amos asks for them, and they don't have a good reason for it. And twice, God relents and said, this will not happen. Does that boggle your mind? It should. <laughs> it should. It is God's character. Hear me very clearly here. It is God's character always to show mercy. It's just what he wants he wants more than anything else to show mercy to his people, to the world. He shows mercy. Why? Because it's just, he just, he wants to. It's as if he's just waiting for Amos to ask, and Amos asks, and God goes, yes! In fact, it wouldn't be mercy if they had given a good reason. I mean, think about just the nature of mercy. If God said, I will show you mercy as soon as you shape up, that's not mercy. That's a reward. 
God's not merciful in that situation. He's a merchant. You pay me something and I will give you a product or a service in exchange. But God is not a merchant. He's merciful. You see? And if we're honest, we probably all think about God that way in some degree or another. I want God's mercy, therefore I need to fill in the blank. How do you fill that in? We actually don't like getting something for nothing. I mean, mercy at its core is getting something for nothing. And, and I bet you like, revulse at getting something for nothing. Like, like if you go out to lunch with somebody and they pay, what do you say or what do you think? Well, I guess I'll pick up the check next time. If somebody, like can you just... Do you not feel some obligation to give something in response? We actually stink at receiving mercy. We want to earn our own way. We want to earn our keep. And that's exactly the problem. Because the one thing that God asks of us is the one thing that we find it hardest to do. Don't make your own way. Follow my way, God says. And if you make your own way, you will slowly and surely destroy yourself. I know, you want to know that you have what you have because you made it happen. You worked hard. You earned it. You put in the sweat equity to which God says... (laughs) You don't want to put in this sweat equity. I know you think you do, but you don't want this sweat equity. You have no idea how much this will cost you. Amos is all about wrestling with justice and mercy. You see, justice and mercy, justice and mercy. How do they work together? We have two sides of the coin. We don't always see one side, or we, don't always, we can't see both sides at once very often. That's our own limitation, not a limitation of the reality. But you see over and over and over again in the Old Testament, God showing mercy to his people, God's people rebelling. Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. He shows mercy. Usually they'll come back for a little while and then they'll rebel. It goes over and over and over again. Last question. How do you break that cycle? I mean, you and I break the cycle, right? We receive mercy. We're grateful. We, for a little while, we respond in kind and we find ourselves wandering and we receive mercy and in our good moments, we receive it back and forth and back and forth. How do we break that cycle? There's only one answer. There's only one way to break that cycle. We find it on the cross. Jesus Christ is the only person in history who did seek God perfectly, who never strayed. When Amos says in Amos 5, seek me and live, like Jesus did (laughs) perfectly. Only person in history. Which means that for Jesus, the only person in history, he's the only one in history for whom true justice means eternal life. 
Because remember, fairness and justice is God giving us what we asked for. Jesus is the only person for whom justice truly means eternal life because he only ever followed in his Father's way. Or say it differently, he's the only person for whom justice does not mean self-destruction. That same Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross, willingly walked the path that he didn't have to walk, willingly walked the path of self-destruction to death and to judgment in your place and in my place to endure the justice of God. Remember in Amos 8, God says, I will send a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Scholars and commentators say that when you don't have the words of the Lord, you don't have the presence of the Lord. In other words, God's threat is, I will remove my presence from you. On the cross, Jesus suffered that exact consequence. Remember what he cried out? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We were on the road to self-destruction. Jesus took us and put us on the path of life, and he walked that road for us so that our story might be one not just of justice and judgment, but of mercy. God is fully just and fully merciful, and we find the full justice and the full mercy reconciled in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's all. A couple years ago, I got this great book of uh, old, old poetry, um, and I've been reading through it recently in my morning, morning devotions, and I'm in a section, a lot of, it's an anthology, a lot of uh, John Donne, if you've read John Donne, uh, late 1500s, early 1600s. Here's, let me just read um, one stanza of, of, if you know John Donne, the Holy Sonnet 14. Here's what it says. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you is yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I'm going to read that one more time because it's a lot, I know. Batter my heart, three-personed God. For you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. That I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. If you had to summarize and, you know, mess with the word order, make it a little easier to understand. Here's what he says. Batter me so you can mend me. Overthrow me so that I might rise again. Break me so that you can make me new. Friends, in Jesus Christ alone, he was battered, overthrown, and broken so that you could be made new. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're, our, our minds are, are small, limited, and finite, and we just don't see and understand everything. And a lot of this is, it's a mystery, it still is. A 30-minute sermon can't suddenly make everything clear. It'll never be clear. 
in this life, probably. But even our rest is not found in us understanding, but in knowing you. You who do understand. You who made it to be. To that end, Lord, help us to submit to you. Where there is discipline in our lives, help us to hear it and receive it and to turn back to you. Help us to seek you and live. And if necessary, batter us so that you can mend us, overthrow us that we might rise again, and break us so you can make us new. We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.